You are listening to Space Time Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Who are you and what are you? <laughs> I am a carbon-based life form, <laughs> currently residing uh, in the local group <laughs> on planet Earth, as it were, um, and um, more specifically, the North Continent of America in New York City. And I teach at LaGuardia Community College as part of the City University of New York um, philosophy, and um, I'm interested in philosophy of Physics, philosophy of cognitive science, philosophy of mind, basically philosophy of anything. I'm interested in it. <laughs> you know, you, you left something important out. My name is Richard Brown. <laughs> <laughs> What's in a name? <laughs> Directly reference me, motherfucker. What's up? <laughs> I am Spartacus. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I am become a mystery to myself. <laughs> Can you just introduce yourself already? <laughs> so, uh, I'm Pete Mandick. I'm a professor of philosophy at William Patterson University, and I'm interested in philosophy of mind and philosophy of science, especially philosophy of neuroscience. And uh, re the past few years, I've really gotten interested in um, philosophy of physics, especially uh, things having to do with space and time. But mostly, I'm a philosophy of mind guy who uh, is obsessed with consciousness. Yes. <laughs> I mean, really, it all is. Uh, it's all consciousness. What are you, an idealist? What am I, an idealist? Um, no, I'm a realist. I'm not a dreamer, man. Oh, wait, did you mean something else? <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting. You know, I, since you mentioned that, um, idealism, I don't know, idealism is one of these perennial things that I'm sure, you know, we'll probably end up talking about some, at some point, but yeah. uh, are you an idealist? I don't know. So one, one question that bothers me a lot is, like, has science refuted idealism? Um, and I don't think that it has. So if you, like, neuroscience certainly hasn't refuted idealism. In fact, some people might say, one of the best arguments for idealism comes from neuroscience. Uh, Barclay kind of thought of this himself. I mean, one of Barclay's best uh, arguments comes from his work on vision, namely how does um, how do we get a 3D scene out of a 2D input? So, you know, once you start realizing that the visual scene is constructed in some way by what's going on in the brain, then you start wondering, aha. Some, now, whether then you get at least the question of is there a, a material world or whatnot. Um, yeah. 
so you don't have to go for idealism, but that's at least leads you to this. It's not a silly question, and science hasn't. I, I don't know. Has has science refuted idealism? What do you think? I think idealism has refuted itself. I don't know whether the reputation <laughs> has been scientific or not. I, okay. I, I mean, I do take I do take idealism seriously in limited uh, areas. So take for example, color. Yeah. I think there's like a really it's still kind of an interesting open question about what colors are. Like when we when we say that something is red or blue, um, what uh, what's the best way of thinking of the truth conditions of that? And I think that um, you know if you bring in if you bring in you know other pieces of the folk theory of color, like for example that red um, is more similar to orange than it is to green. It, right, if that's part of like the folk theory of color, well, when you go looking into um, possible non-idealistic or purely objective uh, grounds for the, those truth conditions, I really don't think you can find it. Uh -huh. you, get, uh, you know, things having to do just with wavelengths of light. Right. Um, you've got to delve into the human visual system and and things like uh, opponent process theory, and now you can see that. <laughs> to see why, the families, right? Yeah, why uh, there would be this property that uh, that we label red, and uh, why we perceive red to be more similar to orange than to green. So, for you know, I think I think there's a really good case for uh, color subjectivism, which is a kind of idealism about color, and that itself is is wrapped up with um, scientific considerations. But like the global kind of idealism that you get from, say, like Barclay. I just think that that's kind of like goofy, and my main problem with it is, you know, the, those kinds of idealists, they, they're never solipsists. They never have the, uh, the cojones to go all the way and uh, be solipsists. And the as, best like, as best as I could, maybe they don't believe in cojones, but uh, <laughs> um, as best as I could tell, their main, their main arguments for uh, not being solipsists are uh, arguments that I, I interpret as kind of these uh, causal or explanatory arguments. They know that there's just certain there's certain patterns in their experience that they can't see how you could explain that without positing something outside of themselves. Yeah. And you know, once you once you bring that in, that kind of argument into the picture, once you allow that that you know, it's not a deducted, it's not a deduction. It's it's uh, it's more it's an inference to an explanation. It's an abductive argument. Uh, it doesn't prove with absolute certainty that there's got to be something outside of you. Right. Um, but once you admit that that's like an okay argument, that's a good argument. Well, why not have there be what what Barclay called matter? Why not posit that there are things outside of the realm of ideas that are the cause of, at least in some cases, the cause of our ideas. So, you know, if you're yeah, why? Why not? But why? Like, so if if the only if the only good reason to believe in the phys in in not in something that's not idealism is why not? <laughs> then all right, I don't know. That doesn't seem that great to me, especially once you throw a kind of a Kantian take on all this stuff um, into the mix. So yeah, Kant. You just gave one of I mean, but roughly one of Kant's more famous transcendental arguments for. Uh, this kind of stuff that there's got that well, there's got to be something 
stable that doesn't change which by reference to the appearances which stream before us sort of uh, are in motion relative to there's there's got to be something stable that doesn't it doesn't seem as though it's under our control um, so the things that are passing like the appearances that are passing before our mind in order to make sense of how they're changed it's kind of a really Newtonian point right in order to make sense of how that change is possible it's got to be something that's not changing something that's uh, mind external um, of course you know that sounds fantastic and wonderful but then of course you find out that what Kant means by mind external is just <laughs> idealism <laughs> but, uh, but um, redefined so that the uh, um, external simply means the part of the mind that you call the physical table I mean it, it's that's still idealism I mean Kant, transcendental idealism is idealism. But what's idealistic about it? Uh, that the table is a mental object, really generated by the mind. What's what's mental about it, though? Um, what's mind generated about it. Well, that it's a phenomena that you ex that you experience it, and in what experience is um, means applying certain transcendental categories, concepts like space and time, object, location. Unity, plurality, cause, effect, you know, the 12 categories or whatever that he rips off from Aristotle. So, but that stuff is, uh, I mean, you know, this is the precursor of the other argument that people give from, the, from neuroscience because a lot of this stuff that Kant says, if you take out the kooky metaphysics, it's still, it's what neuroscience has, has discovered that, uh, that, the, that the mind is actively engaged in organizing and producing our experience and rather than <clears throat> merely acting as a passive recipient of some external scene um, but rather that the mind is constructing um, uh, that seeing seeing an object involves a complex activity that the mind is engaged in rather than a mere passive rece receptivity but I don't it's, see why um, but, but but that would be idealistic well, because how can the mind make something that isn't mental? <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? <laughs> so, I mean what it produces is the table. The table's in space and time. Space well, and time are... representation. Right. But uh, the representation is accurate or inaccurate. Are the conditions of accuracy, are they themselves something mind-dependent? Or are they things that would be there anyway, independent of minds? I mean, are we talking about Kant now, or like what I think? Because if we go on and turn this into a Kant lesson, I'll say I don't like Kant. <laughs> that guy. I mean, but but, but, but I want to hear what you think. But that's the, but this is the argument. I mean, so I still haven't seen an anti-idealism argument anywhere. Um, by the way, let me just ask you something. Uh, if, yeah. if 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 this were a simulated environment, would idealism be true? Uh. I think that uh, there would be. I was no, no. The, the, there would be a ground to the simulation. Well, so but there's a ground to the idealism too, like in Berkeley's view. So the way I think. So one way, forget wow. about Berkeley. You could transfer all of that into some kind of uh, um, that the mind of God really is a massive hard drive, and that the um, idealistic mental world really is the simulated environment that. So you got to get rid of the matrix, you know, brain in a vat, and just think of pure simulation, um, because that's more in line with what Barclay had in mind—that there are just disembodied spirits and their experiences. 
and they're all being maintained in the mind of God. Um, and so I, I think that, yeah, why, why is it that very, very much the same thing as this idea that you have a hard drive that's simulating um, a world and there are a bunch of conscious creatures in that simulated world and they're interacting with things that they think are physical but um, and which from their point of view rightly should be called physical maybe because they can touch them they can feel them just like Barkley said um, but really is there is there something material there that they're interacting with now you say there's a ground right a computational ground maybe yeah, but that's not the thing ground. that they're interacting with when they taste chocolate or grab the table they're not interacting with that ground they're having just a mental experience produced, yeah, by that ground. But how is that different? So there's two questions. One, you know, why isn't that a good interpretation of idealism? And two, uh, if it is, then how come um, uh, you think it? You know, you have good reason to think it's false. I, I, um, I have good reason to think it's false because, um, <coughs> inference to the best explanation is in play, and I think I've got. I haven't supplied them yet, but I think there are better explanations that are non-idealistic. As far as the simulation stuff goes, um, the, when I think about simulations, I think of hardware and software, and I don't know if you can make sense of hardware. Yeah, or, God is the hardware. And well, God is pure spirit, right? Um, sure, I don't know but, you, but, but if, if, if hardware body. just means... if Does hardware. Uh, you could. I also. I say that you could answer that either with a yes or a no, and I'll say that uh, either way you answer it, um, it seems I'm going to come out, or my view is going to come out all right. So let's say God doesn't have a body. All right. What does that mean? I don't know. It means he doesn't have a body, or she doesn't have a body. Sorry. Um, so. So, she, uh, so what does that mean? Well, I don't know. It means that there's some kind of non-bodily way of implementing certain kinds of computational states. Like, what does that mean? I don't know. Ask the non-bodied thing. I think it makes perfect conceptual sense to think of uh, these kinds of states being implemented. And I mean, isn't that one of the one of the things functionalists are always ranting about? Is oh, this is great because you could have like a, an ectoplasm having these kinds of functional states being implemented. So what's the difference between that and this this idea? It, well, look, uh, it's incoherent. So, so do you do you do you disagree with that functionalism when when the functionalists say that you could have non-physical things that have functional states, and then that's one of the that's one of the benefits of their their view. Is well, hold on. I mean, let's separate. Let's leave uh, physicalism off to the side for a second uh, and talk about uh, substance versus non-substantival ontologies. You know, yeah. so for example, Descartes has, uh, and, and the other rationalists, they're substantivalists. There's substances and then uh, the states of those substances, right? So yeah. for, for um, Spinoza, there's just one substance. Yeah. And uh, the way I, I hear uh, Barclay and these idealists, that they, they reject substance. There's just ideas. No, Barclay says there's two things, minds, spirits, and ideas. He's got ideas, substances. Well, mental substances, yeah. Mental substances. Uh, spirits, what he calls spirits, and he thinks God is a spirit. Like the, I mean, that's the word that he uses. I mean, and what else could you? What else would you call a disembodied mind or disembodied substance? A but, spirit. but are these substances something other than bundles of ideas? Um, 
it's not. I mean, what Barclay says about this, I, I mean, I'm not that much of a Barclay scholar, so I, I can't cite uh, chapter and verse. Yeah. Um, and, and to be honest with you, you know, uh, that's a good question. I'd have to think about that. Um, so is he a human <laughs> about spirits? I guess is yeah. the question that you're yeah, asking. That's the and and I don't know, but I've always interpreted him more as a Cartesian about spirits. But you're but you're right. It's an, I think I think I don't know enough about Barclay to make that uh, to say decisively yes or no, or even to make the argument one way or the other. Honestly, but yeah. suppose. But what's wrong about Cartesianism about spirits? Uh, I think even, even if that's not Barclay's better. view, it's better. Um, right. I, I, so what if that's his view though? That there are these substances, um, substances that are not physical. They have ideas. Ideas are not physical. Um, they but occur only inside these substances, and that these substances, in turn, are uh, dependent on ultimately and fully in the thing which um, gives well, them their being, which is God or the simulate or the hardware of the simulation. I, mean, I, think, I think we have to be careful about what you mean by not physical. One one thing you might mean. By not physical is um, uh, in, in contrast with with physical. One way to think about physical or material is something that exists outside of ideas or independent of ideas. Yeah. Well, like I, I was thinking, like Barclay thought. And Mainly, if you, something is physical if it can exist, even if no one happens to be. Yeah, it's not being thought of at the moment or experienced by anything at the moment. Yeah, something that exists. Right. Something that ex exists. Unexperienced, so yeah, that's what's yeah. that's what's supposed to be material, right? Um, I, on that definition, as soon as you have substances, things other than the ideas themselves, you automatically have something material. No, you don't. You have a virtual substance, which depends on this other. No, point. I mean, look at the definition. The, the, the definition is supposed to be something that is independent of being experienced. So right there anyway. No, that's a physical substance. A mental substance is the kind of thing that's capable of having experience. But, the, so, but, but so they're different kinds. So you're right. The, the word substance, we ha we should get rid of it. Um, but but doesn't really have to what be they mean? It, really, what they mean when they the say pressure. substance, though, is thing capable of having properties. So right. Physical yeah. things have physical properties, and mental things have mental properties. But but the but the thing the thing that has the properties does yeah. it have to be experienced? Can it be experienced? It, it does. It's experienced by God. It ha or it has to be simulated. That's so. It's not an independent substance. It's a mental substance. It's dependent on the ultimate mental sub or the ultimate thing. Which in Barclay, you know, he might get into trouble about how. Who's simulating God, and he would have? I mean, you know, whatever. No, I, don't, I don't see how we would have a hardware. We would have any kind of hardware anymore. That if everything is experienced, there's nothing that is unexperienced. God, it maybe is experiencing himself. I mean, ah, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, look, you just—I'm not—I'm not saying I believe this, but what's wrong with the view? So I don't think it's coherent. I don't know how to refute. I mean, I've heard of the incredulous stare. I don't know about the exasperated sigh. <laughs> I don't know how you're supposed to refute the exasperated sigh. <laughs> um, I don't think it makes sense for there to be a representational system where everything is represented, and there's no part of it that is not represented. Why does? I mean, it. It it's unusual, but what's? I don't see, because because I think there has to it's be a kind of ultimate holism about representation. 
but there's no but there's no ground there's no unrepresented ground that explains the capacity for representation yeah it's turtles all the way down or turtles all the way around I mean I don't see why that's incoherent I see why it's strange I just don't see why it's supposed to be like you don't think turtles all the way down is incoherent I mean, part of I mean no, I think that there can be actual infinite series. I think probably uh, that the distance between me Ugh. and the computer screen is an actual infinite series. Oh, because I it's because terrible. I like because it, I like calculus, and I believe that calculus thing. calculus describes reality. Calculus is a disaster. No, why? Oh, come on. Oh man. Oh, we're gonna have a problem. Come here. Come here. So, hey, you want to talk about something else? <laughs> <laughs> Did you just strangle me? Yes. <laughs> You just now noticed. <laughs> well, good thing idealism is true. Okay, but hold on. So, but, but hold on. So you're you're so let, let's you're getting we're getting un, unraveled here. Let's take a step back and reassess. Oh. So let's suppose that for the sake of argument, uh, I take uh, your your points. Um, suppose there has to be a unrepresented ground for these representations. Okay. So say that you know God is that un or the the hard drive or God or whichever one you want is the unrepresented ground, uh, but everything else which exists exists only because that thing represents it. So then suppose you're one of those things. Then you exist only because you're represented by this non-represented ground, this fundamental thing. So okay, then is idealism true for you? Um, why isn't it true for you? So yeah, when you grab an apple, yes, there's some fundamental thing in the ground which is you know, representing that apple and you grabbing it. But you're not grabbing an apple, <laughs> I take it in that sense, in the same way you would be in your kind of material world uh, scenario, or, right? Or am I wrong about well, that? Look, I'm, I'm happy to grant idealism about... Uh, hey, are you still there? Yeah. Okay, your image froze. Oh, sorry. And it froze and unflattering. <laughs> it froze in an incredulous stare, so maybe that's apt. No, I just have uh, myriad con facial contortions that I require to expel these hot gases from from uh, certain cavities in my cranium. So I, I think I think local idealisms are fine, and what you just described is a is a, a local idealism where idealism is tr is true of a lot of things. But what I think is incoherent. It's is, but it's true. But but I see. I was talking about idealism about experience, about like when when you grab an apple and you bite into it, and there's a crunch, and forget about the taste and all those other mental things, but like you know the mass and the density and all that other stuff. Uh, you're not interacting with something physical in this scenario I described. In the scenario. Right. So the idealism is true in that sense in this scenario. What's there's the question? No, there's no <laughs> <laughs> well, you were saying that this wasn't idealism in the in this kind if simulation not global idealism. In a simulation, there's not a kind of because I was trying to make the claim, oh, I mean, if you want to rewind this, I was trying to make the claim that Barclay, it can be seen as making a, this kind of claim that, you know, if Barclay were a secular digitalist like David Chalmers or something like that, instead of a, a, a religious um, member of the Catholic Church, yeah, no, he, would, he, would, he would say something like this, maybe, that, 
instead of God simulating everything and us never really being in contact with the physical objects, but rather in contact with um, mental things and that the apple is mental in that sense, that in this digital assimilation, that is essentially true. Yeah, but like, leave God out of it. God yeah. doesn't, so like, uh, and now... Um, but that's why I brought the hard drive in. The hard drive now replaces... Who's got the best explanation? If no one gets to appeal to God, what, why was God appealed to for Barclay in the first place? He was trying to explain things like objectivity. He was ex trying to explain things like why, how science seems to work, why there seems to be natural laws, these regularities. Right. And, 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 and see, exactly, so that's part of another uh, aspect of this, which is that all of that stuff can be replaced by this kind of simulation hypothesis, and all the arguments can be given, given Why is that for, for that. the standard materialistic story? This, you know, the standard materialist. So, like, you know, Barclay posits God to account for, say, we've got dinosaurs and, and this geological record. That seems to indicate that there there was a bunch of stuff that existed prior to humans being able to experience it. Yeah. How could it be, even though it couldn't be in in human perception? Right. Well, there's this non non human perception. But you know, dude, why do we want everything to exist in perception in the first place? Um. Well, the, 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 the well, that you see, you're you're doing the classic materialist bait and switch. So that's not the question. Here's the question. Given that we only really know one thing with absolute certainty, and that is that there is experience, why believe that there's anything else? Oh, I don't think we know anything with absolute certainty. Well, anything that, there's something that, well, <laughs> really, so you don't think you know you're not a zombie with absolute certainty? Right. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to return to the question of whether there's anything that you can know with absolute certainty. More specifically, can you know with absolute certainty that you are having conscious experience? So we'll be right back after the break. I know that with absolute certainty that I'm not a zombie. I, I, I'll go to the map for that. Absolute certainty, 99.9 .9 bar. Um, so, you know, there could be points, oh, infinite zeros, 1% chance, and I'll still say that's good enough for absolute certainty. I mean, there's no possible way for me to doubt that, that I have conscious experience. That's absolute certainty. But you don't know what conscious experience is. Of course I do. I have it. <laughs> In a way that is just ridiculous to say, I mean, 
they, we're gonna, we can't play these kind of games because, you know, I'm going to get angry and strangle you again. <laughs> and I don't want to do that. <laughs> but, don't you, but don't you think the higher thought theory of consciousness might be true? Uh, yes. It could be true, yeah. And but what's that got to do with it? But those versions of it where, whereby you might turn out to be a zombie. Those versions are absolutely false, and I know that already. Oh, I see. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's true. Uh, any, any theory of consciousness which says that there is no consciousness should just be laughed at and dismissed. And, oh, I mean, you know, uh, you know, people who are into that kind of stuff can join the Flat Earther Society um, Usenet <laughs> and um, go die in obsolete because that's just completely absurd. <laughs> and, of course, zombies would say the same thing, but they lack something crucial, namely knowledge, which I have. And and really, I hate knowledge. I've never even you know. That's right. Yeah, knowledge. Is I'm, yeah, knowledge is the quote uh, the shirt of Tony Chang. <laughs> knowledge is poop. <laughs> oh right, that's right. <laughs> uh, but look, if there's one thing that I know, it's that I'm consciously experiencing certain things right now, like allergies and the uh, symptoms of watery eye, um, and the dry mouth that accompanies taking Zyrtec. That's there's sensations that are occurring because of that. That I could be wrong about their nature. I could be wrong about you know uh, the the way they're presented to me. I'm open to those kinds of internal skepticisms, uh, which maybe we'll talk about later. Yeah. But the one thing that's not doubtable and which is not even on the table is: Am I having experience at all? I mean, Descartes, as 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 crazy and French as he was, um, doubted everything except the duh. Descartes never once said, "Oh." I'm sitting by the fire, but am I a zombie not experiencing anything? That, I mean, that just, you how do you even could coherently you about, entertain that idea? Could you be wrong about whether your experience was as of red? Uh, what just geared up over there? Uh, I've got a, a gas-powered heater. Okay. Is it really are, Yeah, it's, it, no, something just... Became self-aware. <laughs> that was my refutation machine. I was about yeah, right. to the hell out of you. Ah, <laughs> I see. I'm firing it up. <laughs> um, what so I'm setting you up be... for. I'm setting yeah. you up for, uh, you know, uh, realizing that your claim is is so vacuous as to be equivalent to the claim that something is happening. Um, and if you ask me, uh, am no, I, that's not am the claim. Oh, but even that would be a significant nine, nine, nine. claim because I, it's 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 even that even if that is true, that's a significant claim. That something is happening. Something is happening from my point of view. Well, no, something no, no, is no, happening from my something perspective. Is something is happening for me. Something is happening uh, or felt. So it's not just a happening. It's a point of view. It's you know. It's um, it's not a view from nowhere. It's a view from right here, from inside, as it were, this dry mouth, watery-eyed perspective. Um, so that's not a mere happening. That's that's a happening of a certain kind. It's a it's a something, but it's a it's a something for me. <laughs> but what is, what I don't know what content there is to the claim that is for you. As opposed to what? Well, it means that it's not for you. That's one part of the content. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's not, um, it's sort of located and shaped 
in a certain manner given, uh, you know, that it's from this point of view and not that point of view. And uh, given that I have different experiences, different associations, different concept maps, different ways of structuring or associating experiences. So part of what that means is that I have access to that in something which resembles um, not immediacy, but you know, relative closeness. <laughs> but all this stuff <laughs> like it's right there. But it's but see how I had to get it to you. I'm still not fully getting it to you. Um, uh, it's coming all in bits. And, you just rattled off in the in the past twenty seconds. You would you would say that your your credence is like almost absolutely certain. Say that again. All the stuff that you just said about concept maps, etc. Like that's all you lumping that into your you know what you're absolutely certain of. Um, no, but that it's happening, okay. but that there's a point of view and that there's, con you said, what's the content test? That's so what I'm saying. Here's some kind of content. Do you think that's false? I mean, that seems... Yeah, so take a very uh, typical example, like a, so a red sensation. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that we could be wrong about even whether it's a red sensation as opposed to, like, an orange sensation. Yeah, but you can't be wrong that it's a sensation. But now, but now, you know. I mean, can, here's here. Look, look. Seriously, seriously. We, suppose that off. suppose that you're having a thought. Then the thought is, you know, red is a sensation. Can can you be aware? I mean, can you be aware of a sensation of red in that way as a thought about red? That, I mean, that just seems ridiculous. So you can. I don't you're the no. Can so suppose you're uh, having an experience of red. Yep. You're saying you could be mistaken about it, and you think you're having an experience of red. You may actually be seeing orange or something, or experiencing orange. Yeah, right. Can, can you be thinking about red and instead think that you're experiencing red? Or contrarily, can you be experiencing red and mistakenly think that you're merely thinking about red? Those kinds of mistakes just seem like ridiculous. I, I mean, you don't think that they're mistakes you can make? Empirically, um, I don't think we make those kinds of mistakes. I don't think there's any kind of. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, that's that's why I said as an empirical matter of empirical fact, I haven't I haven't heard of some of a case whereby people systematically confuse their experiences for thoughts, or of a case whereby people yeah, so. systematically confuse a hearing for a color. Even if people associate sounds with colors, they don't think of the. Uh, they don't. There's lots of. I think there's lots of examples of those kind of systematic mistakes about. Uh, phenomenal knowledge. So take, for example, um, the McGurk effect. People uh, who aren't familiar with, with that effect, yeah. uh, if you ask them, like, you know, tell us about your experience, they would say, like, you know, I heard this guy say bat instead of pat. Or, um, yeah. Right? And, uh, but, so that's, but, they didn't, but they didn't say um, that I. Uh, they don't ever say that I, they say I heard the person say this. They don't say I saw the words pat. Yeah, so they, they understand. They they, yeah, so another not, example has to do with people's, uh, their visual periphery. A lot of people think that they are sensitive to colors in their visual periphery. Right. They're not, they don't. So... They but they're sensitive to they're sensitive to black and white and and um, vari and uh, variations in um, illumination and other things which we would naively now you're right they don't it's not as detailed and there's maybe some filling in but that's not the kind of thing I'm talking about 
But why wouldn't that be an example of mistaking? So they're thinking about colors in their periphery, and they think they're experiencing colors in their periphery, but they're not experiencing colors in their periphery. They, they merely think they do. Because so they're, they're experiencing the visual input in their periphery, from their periphery. It's just degraded, and the, the amount of content and richness and detail that they attribute to the... Um, uh, to the visual content which they are correct that they're perceiving um, is is mistaken but they're not saying I'm hearing sounds at the periphery of in my peripheral vision they don't mistake the visual input for auditory input but and they say do, that's they a sound thoughts for sensations they think they're having no no, no. that's that's a theoretical interpretation of what's going on here but what, um, what else but, is there to do but well, the, you know, the, there's being fair and looking at, and then considering the other interpretation, uh, which is that they really don't experience those things, but they merely make an, a misinformed judgment about what they're, about how much detail there is in the periphery. You know, maybe because. Um, no, that's what I'm saying. They make a, uh, they make a, a misinformed judgment. Yeah. The, but the judgment is about what they're experiencing. Right, and the judgment is not that. Oh, I'm thinking that I see color right now. <laughs> the judgment is I'm seeing color, right, and right, they're wrong, and they're wrong. So they don't That's make right. the mistake that is of the kind that matters to me, namely where they mistake a thought for a sensation or vice versa. But they think they're having a kind of an experience of color, but they're not having an experience of color. That's right. But they're having a visual experience, and they think they're having a visual experience, and they right. are having a visual experience. So they're they're just wrong about the detail of the visual experience. They're not wrong about like which thing they're picking out. So let's go back to my earlier question. Could you be? Couldn't you be wrong about whether you're having an experience as of red? Um, yeah, yeah. Yes. If you, I mean, maybe. Uh, yeah, but not in the sense where you think that it's the sound of a trumpet, or you think that it's the. Um, the uh, that you think red is the you know uh, sound of a trumpet. What's another good one? Aha, the smell of cinnamon. <laughs> you don't. So you even in synesthesia and those other kinds of cases where you associate maybe a, a smell with a color or vice versa. It's not as though, or at least I don't. I don't have that. So I don't. I mean, but I'm assuming, and from what I've read, and uh, to the limited extent that I've talked to some of these people who maybe some of them you know and I've talked to as well. So you can say some about this. They don't say, oh, it. <laughs> I'm confused about whether that's a smell or a color. They say, oh, you know, somehow that smell seems to go with that color. So, but they're, they're not confused about whether it's a smell. They know it's a smell, and they know that that's, they're experiencing it in a, in a smelly kind of way as opposed to, like, in a visual kind of way, even if they're somehow, they're, they're like, joined. And that's the same with the McGurk effect. So I don't think those... So, you're, so I agree. I, I'm open to internal world skepticisms to some extent, misrepresentation of one's own inner life. I think that you have to be open to that. But at the same time, even so, there are some things which, you know, we're just not open to, and I don't think there's any evidence for either or reason to be open to. But so for those kinds, like that you're having an experience at all, those are the kinds of things I'm talking about. That's in, that that's, you're having experience at all. Right. That it's a visual experience as opposed to an auditory one. That seems relatively... Uh, I'm not going to grant. I'm not going to grant that as visual versus auditory. Again, <laughs> I'm not going to grant that you're absolutely certain about that. So you can, so you're you're telling me that you're going to be walking down the street and someone's going to call your name and you're going to say, "Gee, I wonder if I'm hearing my name being called or if I'm having the visual experience of seeing my name written down." That's that's a legitimate possibility to you that you could. No, it turns out that really you were visually experiencing the name written on your uh, office door and you thought you were hearing 
yeah, sure, I bet we could cook up an experiment where something like that happens where um, people have to keep track of an auditory list, something presented into their ears and also a visual list, and it would be kind of like a Stroop thing. Right. Where, um... You the know, Stroop right? thing doesn't get to the point, though. Because in the Stroop case, what you're showing is that there's interference between two different ways, two different systems, the cognitive system or the conceptual system and the color-representing system. But, like, so suppose, that, suppose we have, um, you know, we're showing people names. Like, they're, they're looking at visual words. Um, right. They're, they're reading, you know, they're seeing Richard Brown spelled out, Pete Mandick spelled out. And right. they're also hearing uh, people saying names. And sometimes what they hear and what they see on the screen are the same thing. And sometimes, the, the, you know, they're, they're looking at the, at the written Pete Mandick, but they're hearing someone say Richard Brown. Right. And there might be some kind of uh, probe, like they have, to, they have to say whether they agree or not, like whether what they're seeing is what they're hearing. I don't, I don't know exactly how to construct the experiment, but I bet we can construct an experiment where people are confused about whether they saw the name or versus heard the name. Um, I'll take that bet. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So, and you would have to, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have, it would have to be not only the case that you showed that there was confusion about uh, whether they saw it or heard it on any particular, you know, because like, you don't want it to be a memory thing. Um, so the, 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 the trick is not, the trick is not to, it's not always a memory thing since what I'm claiming is that while you're having the experience, you it's apparent to you which modality the experience is coming from. But you know what, I'm, I'm thinking about an interesting way of arguing against myself which has occurred to me which is, I wonder if like uh, thought insertions or some schizophrenic experiences might matter here. So sometimes people will say that uh, one possible explanation for schizophrenics hearing voices is that they have an internal monologue that they mistakenly think is coming from outside or vice versa. They hear, you know, chatter from outside like background noise that they mistakenly think is an internal thought. Is that, am I describing that right? Am I misremembering this? No, that sounds right. If that yeah. were the case, then it does seem like you might have cases where someone couldn't tell if they were hearing it or thinking it. Yep. Yeah. So that's an interesting kind of case, as a matter of fact. But still, they're not confused. Oh, well, maybe are they confused that they're having the experience? If they think, well, this thought isn't mine? Are they confused about whose experience, who's having the thought? I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I might be wrong about this. I might back off a little bit of this idea. So uh, just to, not, not to give an argument, but just summarize what my view is. My view is that um, what you what we're absolutely certain of are these super vacuous claims like that. I'm having an experience. Right. Yeah. Right. To, 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 but that's not super vacuous. <laughs> because when the zombie says vacuous, it, it's false. It's more vacuous than I'm having a red experience or I'm having an experience versus a thought. Right. It's so just a super um, vacuous thing, and it's and it's so vacuous that I'm not even sure like that it has any content at all as opposed to like that there's something rather than nothing. You know, I, I like don't something know. Exists. So, so, so how about I this? Uh, something exists. Um, how about if I say, um, all right, yeah, you know, 
that's interesting. Um, but in the normal case, the brain, when it functions correctly, reliably produces this kind of knowledge. And it's only in these other kinds of cases, like weird cases, uh, experimental cases, schizophrenic cases, where you, this reliable process breaks down and where you find these kinds of holes um, manifesting themselves. But in the normal day-to-day -day case, for the most part, we have a reliable mechanism process that produces very nice general knowledge about whether you're seeing Richard, something. Are you else. absolutely certain that you're normal right now? Um, no. <laughs> Isn't it possible that you just became schizophrenic? Uh, it could be possible, yeah. This conversation's helping convince me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I mean, look, this is one of the, this is something I think that is going to become maybe an ultimate issue, <laughs> uh, which is the following thing. How do we react to these like radically skeptical scenarios? Um, by the way, I'm not sure if the idealism thing is a skeptical scenario or not, so let's not talk about that right now, because I, I would probably end up more on the uh, David Chalmers side of the story, whereby I, if idealism turned out to be true, it wouldn't be a skeptical scenario, we just learn about the metaphysics of our world. So I don't know, we could have a debate about that later maybe. But I tend towards towards that view, so I'm not interested in um, in having a debate about whether uh, or whether skepticism is true or not. Um, now I forgot what I was saying. As a matter of fact, what was I just talking about? <laughs> I don't know. You brought Chalmers into it. Yeah, I know. That's what distracted me. I started thinking about something else. <laughs> no, we just lost everything. We just lost everything. Oh well. David Chalmers. I guess that's, yeah, I don't even know. I have to watch the video to remember what I was just saying. So uh, I think... Um, uh, oh, right. So, it's, so about the idealism and leaving that off to the side. Um, now I forgot it again. No, never mind. Let's just move on. Because aren't we approaching like an hour? Shouldn't we end this at some point? Yeah, we should wrap it up soon. But, yeah. but to try to re recall where we left off, um, you know, I was trying? trying to give you a hard time about whether you were absolutely certain Right. Ah, see, speaking of memory lapse, see, though, that's a good way of illustrating my point. So th there's a point, there's a question about how you deal with these uh, radical skeptical scenarios. Um, and I was making the point that I don't think of the idealism simulation stuff as really a radical skeptical scenario. Uh, a, a skeptical scenario, I would say, is one where most of your beliefs turn out to be false. And so the, some of the most radical ones are, one, are, are the kind that you just mentioned. Like, how do you know that you didn't just become schizophrenic? Like, bam, right now. How do you know that? Or even more radically, how do you know that the world wasn't created 15 seconds ago, complete with all your memories and everything else, blah, blah, blah. So these are like radical skeptical scenarios whereby your memory that you had an experience 10 minutes ago is false, which is a kind of different scenario than the idealism scenario. So now, how do you respond to those? I don't know. Some people, um, some people say, uh, "Gee, that those are interesting conceptual possibilities, but why should we think they're real? You know, things to worry about, given you know our normal assumptions about the way the world works and science, and et cetera, et cetera." So yeah, you can't rule them out a priori. I certainly have never met a way of ruling them out a priori. Um, and so, but that, but does that show us that we don't know ordinary things about the world, um, you know, like that we have these experiences and so forth? So this, this is what I was going to say, is that this is the ultimate thing. Is like, yes, 
given that there are these kinds of radical skeptical scenarios, like the instant schizophrenia, like the world created a second ago, how do, which way do you go? Do you go by saying, okay, well, then all knowledge is, we just don't know anything, we give up, or do you say, well, no, that's, that, doesn't ref, that doesn't refute um, knowledge claims that we ordinarily make? And again, just to, since we brought up traumas, I'll use them to good purpose here. Um, you might say, well, look, you know, the, the, you do the kind of dancing qualia, fading qualia style argument to, to get around this stuff, but not about consciousness. So you do something like this. Look, that scenario is just so weird. So many things we hold true would just be so false that it's just so implausible that probably more than likely uh, it's not like that. And then but we I go think, on with our lives. And that's, isn't that, I mean, isn't that the, a better response? An abductive but, argument like yours? But, but, but I, think, I think things are different when we're evaluating claims of certainty versus claims of knowledge. So you want to talk about knowledge? Yeah, sure, I know I'm not a zombie. But you want to talk about certainty? Well, I don't, I'm not certain about anything. Well, I said no with certainty. <laughs> so I was joining the two. I, I, what I said was that I know with certainty, yeah, right. certainty that I'm is not a, a zombie. Knowledge, right? Certainty is, like, uh, is a kind of knowledge. And then yeah. there's like the other kind of knowledge, which is not certain. In the old days, right. they used to call it conclusive reasons or conclusive knowledge or something like that, you know? There's, so there's, some, there's a kind of knowledge that's just like, namely this kind. I'm having experience. I'm not a zombie. That's uh, conclusive. So that's like the super hardcore knowledge. Yes. Oh, and it's true. not vacuous. It, it's, so what I'm fighting against or what I'm trying to like put the defense against is that that's a vacuous claim. It's not vacuous. It's extremely meaningful because the truth of that one simple claim makes this not a zombie world. And that's amazing. That's that's uh, you know something that is the most fantastic thing that's ever happened. You know, right. after after just watching after having just watched the first two episodes of Cosmos, which I thought we were going to talk about today. Then <laughs> uh, this is the most amazing thing that's ever happened in the history of the universe: is consciousness. But, and the fact that we know that this is in a zombie world is like okay, that's look, that's important. Here's the, look, here's the thing: I, I I just want to make a quick point about knowledge versus certainty. Yeah. So, like, um, radical, uh, radical skeptical uh, hypotheses—they don't undermine vanilla knowledge claims, right? We could say, like, look, that's 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 absurd. We don't have to take that into account. I still know that um, I'm alive and that I'm married and that I have a dog. But they, I think they do undermine claims of certain... And, and you would say that in the Matrix or in the simulation, too, that you know you have a, a wife and a dog and a mind. Oh, I thought we were putting aside the, the Chalmers kind of thing, but... No, I'm, I just want to know if, if knowledge resists that kind of uh, transition or not. Is it invariant under simulation? <laughs> what I'm calling vanilla knowledge. Yeah. Uh, maybe. I haven't thought super hard about Chalmers' Matrix arguments, but uh, if I just had to go one way... Uh, I'd go along with Chalmers on that. Okay. But um, but I do think that you know if you're if you're saying if, if you allow that the, the these radical claims like that uh, the universe just popped into existence five minutes ago if there's some non-zero probability that that's true then you can't be a hundred percent certain that it's not. So the, the so these radical claims do undermine your claim to certainty. 
right? So I'm, I'm happy to grant that you have phenomenal knowledge. I'm just questioning whether you have phenomenal certainty. And I well, do. Think that and I have said right, at least you all. have phenomenal certainty with respect to the fact that there is phenomenal. <laughs> There's something phenomenal. <laughs> So that's and the extent. Say, and then, but now, and then I say that's vacuous. And, okay. See, and I say that's we've covered all the bases. discovery of the uh, entire universe. We've covered all the bases, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the pre-conks see the future, and they're never wrong. But it's not the future if you stop it. Isn't that a fundamental paradox? Yes, it is. You're talking about predetermination, which happens all the time. Why'd you catch that? Because it was gonna fall. You're certain? Yeah, but it didn't fall. You caught it. The fact that you prevented it from happening doesn't change the fact that it was going to happen. You ever get any false positives? Someone intends to kill his boss or his wife, but they never go through with it. How do the precogs tell the difference? Precogs don't see what you intend to do. Only what you will do. I'm someone who believes very much in the phenomenology of free will and who questions very much whether that phenomenology should be taken at face value or not. Since I think that the only argument you, the only argument that you can really give for that there is libertarian free will is that you experience yourself as making free choices. That's what it seems like. I've literally had the experience of going, I'm about to break into this building. <laughs> should I do this? And I feel like at that moment I could have said no and walked away, but I didn't. I went in and I, you know, did what I so did. So you do, you do believe in that you have libertarian free will? No, I believe that phenomenologically I experience myself as having this kind of free will. Whether that's accurate is the thing I, I wonder. Whether you know that's just phenomenology, whether that's just the way my determined choices are presented to me. Um, you know, so uh, this is, if we want to mention the work of Greg Caruso here, one of my friends and fellow Graduate Center compatriots, one of our old jamming buddies from way back in the day, you know, he's written, he's written on this and I think, and I think his, his view on this is nice. Um, uh, maybe, you know, everything's determined except that you, you know, represent your experience as not being determined. And so you have the phenomenology of non-determinists with real determinism at, at the lower level. You know, I'm not against that. I, I wonder what kind of, you know, if, if you can give arguments against and so on. But my only claim was that phenomenologically, it's it's pretty clear that in experience, it seems like we're making choices. So at least some. One thing we should talk about some other time is, uh, you know, is this free will stuff. It's interesting to me that you're a qualiophile but not a libertarian and I see them as I, I see them as very parallel that you know um, on the, the, the there's this interface um, between uh, sensory input and the rest of the mind where and that's where qualia lives but there's also an interface between um, the mind and our uh, bodily actions and that's where free will lives and one way of thinking about free will and qualia is that they're these like mystical philosophical, slices of baloney that uh, philosophers mm -hmm. insert in, into ontology and they're both um, I, I think they kind of stand and fall together and it's interesting to see people that are skeptical about the one but not the other people that are like yourself qualia lovers but you know probably uh, not a libertarian about free will 
I, I probably might be a libertarian about free will, but I might also not be. I mean, free will is one of those issues where it's just like a mess to me. It seems it seems like a mess, and yeah. there, uh, I mean, like a real mess, like you know, creatures of darkness level mess and stuff like that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so, but but you're right. Uh, I am very much attracted to the libertarian position. Oh, okay. And and to be honest, you know, the the way I got into philosophy as a historical note is by reading Descartes and Sartre. And if you want to talk about freedom, <laughs> these are guys that seem to be interested in that. Yeah. Um, and but what, but, but what Sartre was doing was phenomenology. And so, you know, I, I can, uh, he was describing the way our own experience is as experienced by us. And we experience it, I think, in the large, I think he was very good at doing this, um, picking out some characteristic features of what it's like to have experience um, that, you know, the phenomenology of free will is an important part of that. So I am, I, you know, and I do flirt with realism about that, but I, I don't know what that would mean um, in the same way that I do in, in the sense for consciousness. Because, for instance, um, the, the compatibilist move here isn't, doesn't satisfy me. So, I, I, you know, whereas, someone, I'm, whereas I'm someone who's going to say about consciousness, look, consciousness is real and maybe it turns out to be a higher order representation and then that would be weird but it doesn't show that it's false or that it's fake or that it doesn't exist. It's still, we just found out like what it is. Um, and it has all the things that we thought about it, you know, this, a lot of the common sense stuff that we thought is like still there, it's just now we know about it. That doesn't seem like you can, it doesn't seem to me, it's not clear, how do I put this, it's not obvious that you can do the same kind of move with compatibilism, that, uh, you know, free will is real, we just found out that it's determined. <laughs> I know I know compatibilists like this try to make that same move and I don't and so I don't want to be seen as trying to make a move like that in the consciousness realm so I think you're right that there's an interesting uh, there's an interesting parallel. parallel here and then to bring the trifecta into trifectaness we could talk about morality and moral properties um, because I'm also a, a moral realist and um, so ah, those, those three oh, things <laughs> Those three things, free will, moral realism, and, and consciousness realism, I think you're right. They've, they have formed um, a, a traditional area where mysticism has hung out. And I sort of, to, to be honest with you, a part of my project is reclaiming those, those, those traditional notions for secular notions and materialist notions. I think it's a mistake to get rid of them. I don't, if we want to throw away consciousness, that's crazy talk. If we want to throw away... Uh, morality, that's insane. What we need to do is um, fit them into the world, not toss them out of the world. Wow. So I, wanna... I guess I'm your frenemy because I want to toss all those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All three of them. <laughs> yeah, that's bad. But see, of course, you don't really want to. I mean, I, I, I know people like you. You say <laughs> stuff like that, but you don't mean it um, because if you did, then you know you wouldn't be as worried about the gender issues in philosophy or um, minorities being getting jobs and what we can do to help um, as people of privilege, as as people as white male um, individuals in in a field dominated by white male individuals. I personally know that you worry about that kind of stuff. Um, well, you're just, and you're you personally, the guy, who's the guy that tried to refute uh, I, uh, Barclay by kicking the rock? Johnson? Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. What he's, about him? He's like, 
I refute you thus, and he kicks the pocket. <laughs> so that's what you're doing to me. You're saying like I, you know, my moral idealism is thereby is refuted by uh, the fact that I'm morally outraged by bad behavior. Yes. For example, the profession. Exactly. That's my claim. Yeah, yeah. That that the fact that you are that if you really wanted to toss that stuff, you would uh, you would you would cultivate a dispassionate attitude towards them. But clearly, there's got to be something of value that these kinds of attitudes and reactions have. That's the value of morality. That's why it's important to make sense of it somehow. Now, you want to make sense of it in terms of personal reactions or you know societal pressures. Made. Actually, I don't know what you want to make sense of in terms of. But it sounds like not in terms of like real things in making things you know reacting worthy or something like. Which is what I would want to say that you know it's appropriate to fear some things. It's not appropriate to fear other things. If you're afraid of a stuffed bunny, unless the stuffed bunny is made of poisonous, explosive things, it's inappropriate to be afraid of it. And maybe you can extend a case like that to a case like it's appropriate to be outraged by it. It's appropriate to be disquieted by it. Um, no, I'm not saying you can do that. I'm just saying, you know, why? what's wrong with looking at that and make, trying to make sense of our reactions um, in some kind of objective way, which is what we want to do in the other areas where we have these kinds of reactions. Um, now you're going to say, no, 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 no. Morality is like colors, and I already said I'm a color idealist. And so, you know, I, th I think that's an area to explore because a lot yeah. of people have grouped those things in the same category in the way yeah. you did. Yeah. Right. Yes. So I think that's pretty much all we have for this episode. I think we should wrap it up. We should uh, say who we are and then get the heck out of here. I'm Richard Brown, Associate Professor of Philosophy at CUNY LaGuardia, here for Space Time Mind. <laughs> That's gold. You're a star. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and I'm Pete Mandick from William Patterson University. You've been listening to the podcast Space Time Mind. Our musical theme is provided by the band Quiet Karate Reflex, a band that Richard and I are both members of, along with Hakwan Lau and Alex Kiefer, and the name of the song is Aristotelian Eye Jelly. Until next time, we'll see you in space time.
That was fucking really cool.